Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my new co-host, Petko Stoinoff. Petko, hey. Hey, Rachel, thanks for <laughs> adding me to the, as a co-host, this is an amazing podcast with amazing guests, and I'm looking forward to, to, to the, today's guest. Do you Absolutely. want to introduce them? Absolutely, yes, yes. So I'm really excited. I love when we have guests come back, and, and welcome back to the podcast, Derek Weeks. He's a software supply chain advocate and one of the world's foremost researchers on the topic of DevSecOps and securing software supply chains. Such an exciting conversation today. Derek. I can't wait to get yeah. into it. <laughs> Rachel, I'm excited to be here again. Uh, you know, I wish we had solved all the world's <laughs> problems that we had discussed in uh, our uh, inaugural episode uh, together. But um, yeah, there are still some things that uh, left to be done in this area. Petco, it's nice to meet you as well. Definitely. Pleasure to meet you, Derek. You know, it's kind of funny. I think the last time we had you on this podcast, uh, was actually before COVID. I mean, you could think of it as, you know, BC and AC is how I see life now. So I, we haven't solved cybersecurity since, you know, COVID, you know. <laughs> no, we're, we're, no, <laughs> and it's still rearing its ugly head every now and then. So um, it, it's it's best that we continue to talk about it and help people through their journeys. Absolutely. It's, you know, and, and this is one of my favorite topics. It's, you know, uh, I, I swirl around this idea of, you know, grading company security, right? And, and and you think about things like this Open Source Software Act of 2022 that's coming up. When you think that companies have gone to 30, from 35% to 75% um, of open source so- software as part of their audited code base, according to McKinsey, that's pretty significant. And if you don't have any parameters around this, right, on the supply chain, then how do you, how can you feel confident what you're bringing into your company and building your business on is, is going to be safe? Yeah, I think there, <laughs> there are a lot of people that are paying a, a much more attention to their software supply chains than, than they ever have before, uh, which I think is a good thing. But uh, as I mentioned just uh, a minute ago, there, there's still a huge, um, there's still a huge amount of work that needs to be done in, in this space. You know, part of what you mentioned, like you know, the McKinsey study that says, "Hey, everyone's using open source software, open source components in their uh, in their software." And you know, I remember this is going back almost a decade when I started working at Sonotype. And at that time, there were, let's say, 20 million software developers on the planet. And they were running, uh, they still run Maven Central, which is where all the Java open source components exist. And the year I joined them, they had something like 13 billion downloads of Java open source components from 20 million software developers. And I thought, oh my gosh, like there's just a huge amount of activity happening. And even if you go to the extremes of how many software developers there are today, it's somewhere I've seen between 50 and 70 million software developers. So let's assume that's true. 
The number of open source components being downloaded annually is something like 3 trillion. So if you just do the math on how many open source components are being downloaded and used, it's no surprise that any modern application has open source right. software in it that developers are choosing to uh, download the code rather than write it themselves. There are massive innovation efficiencies afforded to organizations that are using these. So there's a lot of good happening in this. Um, but when I think it comes down to, when, when we look at software supply chain security, at the heart of the discussion is, if you're going to use an open source component, is it good or is it bad? And what have we done to help you make that determination? And good or bad could be a cybersecurity vulnerability, or it could just be it's outdated, it's buggy, it doesn't run as good as the previous versions, or it's not as feature rich as the, the previous versions. Um, and I know you mentioned the uh, Secure Software Supply Chain Act. We can get into that. But I think just setting that context for people that aren't totally aware of open source usage out exactly. there and just how much it has proliferated modern software development, you you have to recognize the scale at first. This isn't a problem that's going to happen or a problem that's you know going to be ubiquitous or, or a behavior that's going to be ubiquitous. It has been ubiquitous <laughs> for a decade. It's only getting more and more so. Exactly. Derek, when you start talking about scale, I mean, it's hard to imagine trillions of downloads, but like you were involved with the Linux Foundation and yeah. just thinking of the scale that that had, everything from Cloud Foundry to Cloud Native Computing that allows you to do multi-cloud security to, you know, involved in blockchain to the software that runs on your TV, I mean, that's all open source. That's yeah. a project that was used for someone to build on top of. It, it, yeah. I mean, think about it. The, the application that's on your TV at home today started with an open source project and is yeah. still supported as an open source project. Yes. It, and you know, that has allowed for massive waves of innovation in every single imaginable market. I mean, from you know genetic sciences to farming and agriculture to next generation energy grid and infrastructure, you know, to cybersecurity, to cloud computing, to, you know, the, the Linux kernel, uh, it, it is all out there. It is, you know, some of it is used much more than, than others, uh, but some of the most critical open source projects that are out there only have a couple of developers that are working on these things. Um, not because they're not super popular. It's just, you, you know, a, a couple of developers are working on some critical piece of infrastructure. There are 10 of them. There don't need to be more than 10 people necessarily working uh, on those. And, and it's fine. But, um, you know, not all of those developers might have the expertise on the security side that, that they uh, th that we might like them to have. Right. And, and Derek, I can't help but think about, you know, Log4j and OpenSSO and some of the changes that kind of snuck in there and made and like how what should organizations or what, what is the industry doing to ensure that open source is secure? You know, 
I'm sure there are, you know, it's at least we can audit it publicly, which is great. But is there something that we should be doing above and beyond that we're not doing today, either as an organization, as a nation, as just, you know, individuals? I think if we go back a couple of years, we could just replay the parts where <laughs> of the previous podcast where I said, here's what we should be doing um, that, that we're still not doing enough of today. Uh, so, so one part of that, if you just think back to what, what I said, there are trillions of downloads from tens of millions of developers. The, the thing that we want to be aware of first is what are we putting in our software in any application being built today? What have we put in it? And is that good or bad? Mm -hmm. And one way to assess that, that the industry has come up with, and this is not new, is creating a software bill of materials, mm -hmm. which is effectively an ingredients list of all the open source components and their dependencies that went into to building this app. And if the, if the software bill of materials is also associated with vulnerability information about those open source components, then the good or bad determination specifically to cybersecurity, can, we can help surface that information to organizations. Now, that's, that is a great, um, uh, effort that has been uh, th that has been advocated by a number of vendors and a number of people in government and a number of people in industry. But when we look toward practice and again, like I was talking S bombs eight, nine years ago, 47 uh, percent of organizations today are using S bombs. Right. If we look at the number of organizations that are actually using SBOMs across all segments of their application portfolio, it's 14%. Right. So, yes, we know that SBOMs exist. Yes, not almost half of the organizations are using them. Uh, and then you look at how many organizations actually have an open source policy that that set like on top of using an SBOM. Let's go back to, do you even have rules for your developers of, you can use open source components or you can't, and if you can, what's qualified as a good one versus a bad one? So that's your open source policy. 49% of organizations have an open source policy in place. When I used to run the DevSecOps community survey for, I think I did that for six uh, consecutive years, the number of organizations that had an open source policy that were using them hovered around that 45 to 50% uh, mark, which says that, you know, if you go back to 2015 and you say, hey, Open source policies are important. We're going to see if anyone's using or applying one of these. From 2015 to 2022, there hasn't been any kind of dramatic change in that. And yet, in you go back to 2014, which I, I if I remember correctly, 2014 was OpenSSL and Heartbleed. If you go back to 2016, 2017, the major struts vulnerabilities that came out and the Equifax breach 
uh, that was tied to that, you know, go back not even a year ago to the log4j vulnerability, right? Okay, so how many of these things will it take for you to say as an organization, we need to pay attention and set some ground rules for what we can use and what we can't use and make that available to the the developers and operations teams and cybersecurity teams there. So that's, uh, you know, it's a bit of a take on where we are, which is not, honestly, is not great for an or- if you go out and question people like, do you care about cybersecurity or do you care about open source security? I think the overwhelming answer is absolutely yes, this is critical. We all need to pay attention. Log4j was such a headache for all of us. And then you look at practice tied to those opinions, it's really lagging. Yeah. You know, during Log4j, I'm kind of remember the old cybersecurity saying, do you know what's on your network and do you know what it's doing? And when you think of like S-bombs and there's open source, do you know what's in your code and do you know what it's doing? Do you know what its vulnerabilities are? It, it also applies to code, that same outage. But I know at Log4j, talking to so many vendors and even customers, like they were struggling to even know what their internal teams were doing because they weren't even aware they were using Log4j. So do you think that, yeah. that Log4j was almost, did it change anything? I'm kind of curious. Yes and no. Like it, it moved the needle for some organizations. More investment is is taking place here. If you look at the um, if you look at software composition uh, analysis, which is the you know this key part of open source or, or software development and cybersecurity and being able to assess the risk associated with these components, it's moved from the earliest adoption stages you know, eight, 10 years ago um, to beyond the the um, peak of inflated expectations, beyond the trough of disillusionment, it is now going mainstream, right? So it's evolved over that time and the markets have evolved uh, over that time and the vendors in this space are now, you know, worth billions and billions of dollars because there is a market in this space. People are paying attention uh, to this but there is not enough activity. And when you talk about, you know, the reaction to Log4j, like what's on your network or what's in your applications and people struggling, like the going back to the S-bomb, the whole reason that you have an S-bomb is when Log4j is announced that there is a vulnerable, that X number of versions of Log4j are, are vulnerable. The first question that any organization has is, did we ever use those versions of Log4j? If the answer is yes, the next question is, where did we use it? Mm -hmm. If you can't answer that, you are in really (laughs) bad shape because you're now going on a scavenger hunt, which can take weeks to months to, to complete. Right. If you can answer it because you happen to have implemented S-bombs and you were tracking what you were putting in your applications, then it becomes a, 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 a kind of response to we know we've used it. We know where it is now. How fast can we move fixed code or updated code into production now? In a lot of DevOps organizations, if they have new 
new code that needs to move into production, the best organizations can get that done in a day under normal processes. Maybe, you know, leading organizations that are not necessarily the best could get new code out in a matter of three days. The worst organizations are getting new code out in a month or so. Now, in that same kind of scenario, what are your adversaries doing? When Log4j was announced, it was within hours that attacks were being waged. There were something like estimated 10 million attempted uh, 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 attack attempts made an hour from adversaries after Log4j. So it's not just about like, what do we know? You know, did we ever use this? Where is it if we did? How fast can we remediate it? And part of that is how fast are our development and release efforts? But how fast are your adversaries at the same time? If your adversaries can find a new exploit or, or find a new vulnerability and exploit that in under 24 hours, but you can't release new code for 72 hours, you're vulnerable for 48 hours. There's 48 hours of pain where your data and your customers are at risk. And that's really like the the concerning part of what we face today. Now, Rachel, Derek, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought the U.S. government after Log4j kind of passed an executive order out there. Um, I think it was 14028 that required the federal government, if they're buying software, for it to come with an S-bomb. Did that change anything? I mean, is it is it making the industry start thinking about delivering that as part of a built-in requirement? Yeah, so um, here's the, the good news of the government acting. One is when the executive order goes out from Biden or when the software, Secure Software Supply Chain Act is moving its way through Congress, many more organizations are paying attention to this. Are we going to be mandated by law to take action right. so that the 47% who are using S-bombs today should notch up toward 100, you know, <laughs> optimally should notch up to 100% of organizations are using S-bombs today or, or have implemented some type of S-bomb technology. But, you know, as I just said, from 2015 to 2022, the needle didn't move significantly, even though we had these major vulnerabilities that, that led to uh, very large breaches out there. Um, so when more people pay attention, more action is right. taken, it does move the needle, right? So that's, that's actually a good thing. On the con side of this, if we looked at the pros being people are paying attention, the con side is, okay, e- even though I have an S-bomb, how fast am I compared to my adversaries, as I said? If I've rolled out new software in an application or an edge IoT device, um, is it upgradable at all? Mm. 60% of the vulnerable versions of Log4j are still out there because the infrastructure that they're sitting on can't be upgraded, right? So then you have to put in other security mitigations mm. if 
if you can at all. The, Derek, then, so, so Derek, what you're really talking about is technical debt, if you think about it. I mean, mm -hmm. if an organization is not keeping up with the vulnerabilities, they're not keeping up, if they're running 10-year-old code, it's going to get harder to get it up to the latest because they don't have to just change log4j. They've got to change probably 30, 40, 40% 40 of the code just to get it up there. Like who should be responsible for, I hate to use the word hygiene, but you know, or the technical debt yeah. here. Like, is it the organization? Is it developers? I mean, if we live in a DevOps world or DevSecOps, who owns the second ops? You know, hygiene is a really good way to, to think about this. Uh, and I use that term often. So uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, it you know, in terms of who's responsible, I think it's uh, it is the organization overall. It is not necessarily the software developer, the individual software developer. I think there needs to be a culture uh, of security. You need to combine that culture or instill that culture of cybersecurity, secure coding, using the best and latest open source parts, if you will, um, you know, combining that with uh, with automation in environments uh, to to help developers. So I, I kind of liken this and we talk about software supply chain security. Let's look at supply chain security and, you know, in going back to a manufacturing realm, let's go on Toyota's production line. There's some worker that's saying I need to put brakes on this car going by on the production line. So I'm gonna pick the brakes that I've been using for a long time. I'm gonna put them on this car and the next car coming through. Is it the person on the production line's responsibility to say, I need to put the best quality brakes on this vehicle going through the production line? No, there's someone in the organization that's assessed what are the best brakes from the best suppliers with the best track records out there that we can source into our organization and say, these are the ones that everyone should be used. And, and effectively procurement is that kind of policy mechanism for governance policy mechanism for an organization like Toyota. So if you take that into software supply chains and the developer, the developer can pick Today's developer can pick almost any open source component they want, download it from the internet for free, put it into the, their application. If you're one of the lucky organizations that has an open source policy that people are actually following, you know, maybe there's some criteria that you can evaluate that against. But the number of components each developer is using annually is so large, you have to rely on automation that gives you information to say, hey, developer, this is this is a good component. By the way, it's the latest or almost the latest version of this component that was released. Therefore, it has the most functionality and the least bugs. By the way, it also has no known security vulnerabilities associated with it, right? Uh, another plus, let's go and use that. Or, hey developer, this particular component is like six years old. There are 58 newer versions of this component available. By the way, all of the you know, 12 surrounding versions of this component and this one have known security vulnerabilities. Would you move like 18, 20 versions up, use this better, safer, 
higher performing component, right? And to give them that information in a simple way while they're coding, almost like if I'm writing a blog, Google is going to tell me, Derek, you spelled that word wrong again, right? <laughs> and then gives me a little fix it, you know, just right mouse click and find the good spelling of that word and fix it. Like we need to make it so easy for developers don't have enough time to go out and manually assess every component that they would use or download. And automation has to be part of that. But again, you know, going back to what I said before, we have to instill a culture of security in these organizations where doing that kind of performance check Mm -hmm. On something as simple as, is this thing good or bad, is also as simple as the other kinds of security hygiene, like don't use password one, two, three on, you know, on anything that requires you know, someone to log in. Don't include code secrets you know, in the releases of, of these applications, right? So very simple cybersecurity hygiene practices need to be extended beyond you know the basics that have led to a number of breaches it, it sounds like we kind of need to put a, a little bit of guardrails around some of the developers or they'll go pick the latest or greatest or the version they're comfortable with without considering security is more training the, is, the what we have to do with them or is it regulation i mean what do we i'm thinking at the nation level or the global level how do we move the needle as you put it since we haven't in the last seven years any suggestions yeah, you know, there's no silver bullet right. to software supply chain security. It is a multi-layered approach. There is culture. There is research and education. There is, you know, secure coding uh, classes. There is automation that surfaces the, this information. This is implementation and enforcement of policy. There is government regulation that, that comes into uh, all of this. There is researching and finding what are the most critical and secure uh, or the, the most critical open source components out there so that we can get more eyeballs on them and secure the, those components that are being used. There is something I, I read something like there were 60 or 70 million new projects added to GitHub last year. Mm. Like, honestly, like, should we look at all those for any kind of security flaws? Sure. Like, in reality, like, you can't do it without automation for one. But let's just say not all of those are super critical. Right. How do we find out of those 60, 70 million, maybe there are 10,000 or 20,000 that are incredibly important that need more eyeballs, that need a higher elevated level of cybersecurity hygiene applied to them. And what can we do to invest there? And, you know, part of it, when we get to kind of the investment areas, uh, you know, at the Linux Foundation, the Open Source Security Foundation, that, that's a sub-foundation of that, back in May, introduced a 10-point mobilization plan for securing software supply chains. And the cost outlined in that mobilization plan was about $150 million over two years. 
for industry to be able to invest in the most critical things that would make a very large impact on improving the security of code flowing through our software supply chains. That feels like a pretty, to some, it could feel like a pretty big price tag. But when you look at the cost of a log4j happening, I, I haven't seen any specific um, you know, reports on how much log4j costs the industry, but knowing all of my friends that were like, this thing broke on, I forget if it was like Wednesday or Thursday of the, the week and it was Saturday and they're texting me like, my team's been here 24 seven, it's Saturday, we're still working on trying to figure out what's been impacted, where we might have breaches, like multiply that by, you know, 100,000 organizations that, that were dealing with that, the cost was huge. Now, this is the Open Source Security Foundation working with industry in the private sector, but also bringing in government to say, we also need your help and support and direction on implementing this plan but the time has come for us to collectively act, mm -hmm. especially in the private sector, on really fixing this problem or making a major dent in it. And the, the reality, when you look at the kind of alternative end of the spectrum, government comes in with the Secure Software Supply Chain Act and says, industry should implement SBOMs and here's what we want you to do about it. Whether it they covered all the bases or not, and we can kind of get to the, some of the things they didn't cover uh, in that, government comes in when industry fails to act. This is not a good thing for the private sector. This is a forcing function for the private sector, but it's only coming in because industry wasn't acting fast enough and the public and our data is at risk, right? It's not really, you know, if you're a cybersecurity vendor offering solutions in this area and government forces your, everyone's hand to say, now you have to implement these practices, you're sitting very happy because now everyone has to buy your solutions. But the reason that that's happening is industry had chance after chance after chance OpenSSL, Struts, Bashbug, you know, Log4j to, to act and failed. And government's now saying, because you're failing to act, we're taking action. It yeah, may well, be positioned differently, you know, of like, oh, we're all coming together <laughs> to support this common good. But if we had acted back after OpenSSL it, with a, a little more commitment, uh, I don't think we'd be at the place now where we have to worry about legislation coming in. You know, when I think about industry, it always people always say, oh, it's a tech problem. Let the, you know, the technical guys can always keep up. But if you think about it, even a media company, you know, Disney, Netflix, they have software development shops internally. They're doing the same yep. things as a tech company would. Or if you are producing a car that on a factory and that factory is updating its software, you know, every month or, you know, multiple times a month, that's also software. And I think we tend to forget that when we start talking about software, it's not just the tech industry, 
but all industries have software in them. Even the banks have software. I mean, you name it, there's software everywhere. It's not a tech problem, but it's a it's a global problem. And I, I think one of the you know the great things that's come out of the, this problem is not not only are there vendors in this space, but cybersecurity specific vendors, uh, but there are organizations like Google and Microsoft and J.P. Morgan and uh, I'm sure like uh, I'll name the these co- companies uh, like a, a Target or a Coca Cola or a John Deere or a Disney that may have developed some cybersecurity analysis capabilities. And what they've determined is, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be a cybersecurity company, but we have this thing that we built internally to help solve this problem. And we're going to open source it because everyone can benefit. Like we're not in the business to, you know, go and become a cybersecurity, uh, you know, software company. So, Let's make this available to everyone. And that has helped progress the state of the industry, which I think is is very good. So there's definitely a lot of good points coming out. Yeah. Uh, but again, when you think about like just the baseline, do you have an open source policy? Almost half the organizations do. Do you have S-bombs that you're using? Not even half of organizations do. There's still a lot of work to be done on the practice side of even if the technology is available, it doesn't mean people are taking advantage of it. It doesn't mean it's been instilled in the culture of these organizations to actually do the work right, or invest in making that happen. I'm remembering back to when I used to write code and I never open sourced it, so it's a long time ago. but. You know, it always, you know, the traditional software method is you test it as you're developing it, but most of the time you didn't really do testing until the very end. And of course, because of timelines, oh, we have to get the software out. Uh, let's take testing from a month down to like one day. <laughs> and and I feel like SBOMs get put in the same bucket where you do it at the very end and maybe you get a subset of it. I mean, how many of the organizations actually use automation to do, do SBOMs? I mean, you, met, you, you mentioned... You, you, if, you, if you're not automating it, then there's no way you, you will keep up with any kind of uh, the pace of modern software development. And even like a best practice could be you're looking at at SBOMs all the way through the, the development lifecycle. But it's most important to do it before release, because once it's out there, yeah. one, you want to know that what you're putting out there that could be in line of sight for adversaries is good. Secondly, as, as we were discussing with Log4j, if you put something out there and don't know what it was or where it went, you, the first two questions you ask, okay, today there's a new Log4j vulnerability that was announced. Did we ever use it? If so, where? You can't answer that, right? That That is a big problem for those in industry. Um, So we we do have to build it in more. It has to be automated just from the standpoint of, again, go back and do the math. Three trillion, let's say there were three trillion open source downloads, uh, open source component uh, downloads in the last year. And let's say there are 70 million developers. That is a lot of uh, open source components and packages per developer, um, 
there's no way you can manually approach this. I remember, you know, it was funny. So this was, this was ages ago. Uh, I went to a very large insurance company in the, the United States and we were at Sonatype and they were looking at buying our solution at, at that time. And they, it, we asked them like, what was the, like, how did you determine financially whether this kind of solution was going to make sense or not? And they said, when we were doing the math, it was either invest in this software, enterprise level software, you know, I, I don't want to get into pricing of anyone, but enterprise level software is like six figure kind of purchases, right? And maybe if you're gigantic, a seven figure purchase. But they said in order to get enough people to assess what we were doing, this you know, six, seven years ago, we would need to construct a new building on campus to house all of the people to manually assess this. It wasn't fathomable to hire one, build a building, two, hire all those people, three, train them, four, keep up with the pace of development. Like it was just impossible. So the math for them was really easy. Yeah. It's gonna cost a lot less to buy some solution to help us or even look at you know open source uh, SBOM kind of capabilities that are out there, analysis capabilities that are out there from OWASP or, or other organizations. And to bring those in versus the, the new building costs. I don't, you know, I'm not in real estate. I don't know what new building costs, but it's more than seven figures. <laughs> I, I imagine, right? So Derek, we had you on here two years ago and not, and as you pointed, not much has changed, but hopefully the <laughs> securing open source software act changes a few things. Uh, you know, looking forward to having you back to help us see how it's changed, you know, or Absolutely. since then. Yeah. You know, again, we're making progress because we're talking about it. There are good things happening across the industry and an investment being made. The software, you know, secure software supply chain act right. is yet another element of action that, that we can see. The Open SSF 10-point uh, mobilization plan is another one. But, you know, I, I think that the things that I would continue to emphasize is, you know, one, yes, we do need to put practices and culture in place. But two, what are your adversaries doing? Right. Because if you're not investing toward the capabilities of your adversaries, if you're twice as good because you implemented new practices, but your adversaries are still 10 times better than you, you're still yep. failing, yep. right? And I think that the other thing that you know we need to look at, and this would be a whole, uh, whole other episode, or maybe you guys can go and find a guest that um, talks about cybersecurity insurance, in uh, the impact of that on an organization is part of, I think, why industry is sometimes failing to act is the cost of cybersecurity insurance ha has risen and has gone up substantially. But if you look at the cost of that versus the cost of the breach or dealing with attacks, it's the insurance is still cheaper. Right. And yeah. so I'm not as motivated to act and, and things like the Secure Software Supply Chain Act. One of the areas where it kind of maybe falls short is, OK, let's say I don't produce an S-bomb. 
right? What's my liability yep. for not doing this or not fixing something that's in the SBOM? What, yeah. what is the cost to my organization? Is, and is there any enforcement around this? Exactly. Like, I think that's where we still need to make more progress on, you know, how do we enforce it? And what is the cost exactly. of yeah. you know, it, not enforcing it? Derek, you remind me of something because I've had this conversation just last week with um, large companies that are dealing with cyber insurance. And a lot of them said the cost has gotten so high that I'm just self-insuring now. Or they said when they mm -hmm. dug into the insurance policy, they're finding out the scope has changed. They're not covering as much as they used to. So for those of you that do have cyber insurance, you know, check your policy. Don't just pay the check. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that, that, like I said, that's an entire episode, one that I'm totally not qualified to speak on. But I just, you know, I look at uh, I know costs are, are increasing yes. there, um, yeah. but it's still on some of the you know, when you look at some of the fines that become public on these companies um, and what part of those yeah. fines might have been covered by insurance, uh, it it doesn't feel like it's yet expensive enough for right. people to either you know you go self insurance route or something else, but it yeah. feels like that's also part of the equation that we need to 100%. rectify. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Derek, can I ask you one final question? Because I know we're we're coming up on time, but um, yeah. I'm, for the benefit of our listeners, you know, we have a lot of folks kind of looking to come into the industry and, and kind of make their mark somewhere. How did you get on this path uh, of DevSecOps and securing software supply chains? It's really interesting as, you know, we've talked to some people who have like a PhD in medieval history uh, and now they're part of OWASP. <laughs> it's just so fascinating, yeah. the pathways of, of how people get to where they are. And I would love if you could, you know, share some of that with our listeners. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. I, I, you know, prior to Sonatype, I was not involved with cybersecurity uh, whatsoever. But when I went into Sonatype, one of the fascinating things that I was able to get visibility to right away was what was happening with Maven Central, where all these Java open source components were, and you know, we could analyze that data internally. And when I when when we were talking about this internally, how much was happening? How how many open source components various organizations were downloading? When we knew what percentage of those were good or bad, and and I said we really like we need to expose what's happening yeah. in this, which led to the state of the software supply chain report mm -hmm. that I, that I led the publication of for years there. Um, but it was really just about being a data geek. I had access to all of this really cool data that had a story into it, that, that had a story that was very relevant to people. Uh, and, and the other side of it, and I'll give due credit to John Willis, um, one of the earliest advocates of the, the DevOps movement, when he was on stage continuously at DevOps events, and he said, you have to pay attention to Deming and what he was trying to teach the manufacturing industry about build quality in and 
how how important is that to the future and competitiveness of an industry? And I was able to marry a lot of the concepts that John Willis was talking about on stage. And I did, you know, a lot of reading on Deming uh, myself, but marrying kind of what Deming was teaching physical supply chain manufacturers, applying that back into software manufacturing and DevOps. It was kind of the marriage of this Mm -hmm. data view of things where I was geeking out and this, this, the, the understanding that the problem we were trying to solve in software and DevOps was very similar to a problem that other industries had solved. So we weren't coming at this anew. We were just trying to mimic what had been achieved in other industries, which said you actually can get better at building quality in. And it can impact whole industries and the competitiveness and customer satisfaction tied to those products. And here was a new industry. And I've worked in software for 30 years now. So when it was about making software better, that's where I was like, let's double down my efforts on trying to, you know, dive in and help make a difference here. Nice. Nice. That's great. See something, say something. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Derek, thanks again for joining us. It's been so great to have you back. And it's disappointing we haven't made more progress forward, but it's exciting to see some forcing functions that are bringing this to the top of the list. Yeah, Rachel, I, I appreciate it. Petco as well. And the, the conversation is uh, always lively here. I <laughs> uh, always look forward to listening to your latest episodes coming out as well. Oh, thank you, Derek. We appreciate it. And to all of our listeners out there, thanks again for joining us this week. And we look forward to catching you next time. Until then, be safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.